so welcome everyone to the third episode of the CNS uh, Controversies in Neurosurgery podcast. Uh, our topic today, we're going to speak about uh, resection versus ablation uh, for tumors. Um, I'm Seth Oliveira, and I'm joined again by my co-host, uh, Rashna uh, Ali. And then um, our guest today is Dr. Shabar Danish. Um, and Dr. Danish is the chairman of neurosurgery at Jersey Shore University Medical Center and has uh, um, experience with the, the topic today. Um, and so I'd like to welcome uh, both Rashna and, and Dr. Danish. Uh, thanks a lot. Glad to be here. And uh, so, so we're just going to get right into it and talk today about, uh, you know, so, so really kind of the topic is, you know, the classic kind of, you know, treatment surgically for, for, you know, brain tumors is, is surgical resection. Um, and, and, you know, a more novel treatment is stereotactic laser ablation or laser interstitial thermal therapy. And, uh, and Dr. Danish, you know, you know, this is obviously something you have a lot of um, uh, experience with, and I was hoping you could at least for our listeners kind of describe, you know, the technique and, uh, and we'll just start there and then we'll kind of get into some of the more controversial aspects of it. Sure. I think, uh, so laser therapy has been around now for a little more than 10 years. So, um, 10 years ago, there was, you know, one or two ways, you know, to do it. And now there's a whole host of ways to do it, um, as technology has advanced and people have become, you know, more comfortable with incorporating the technology. I think, uh, people have, uh, physicians, surgeons have developed their own ways in terms of, uh, sort of techniques. It's really about the laser placement. The ablation techniques is a different part of this. So I think insertion technique is, you know, part one. And, you know, you can broadly, you know, sort of categorize these as a frameless technique versus frame technique versus a intra MRI technique. Um, and all of them, I think, have their merits and uh, their potential limitations. So I, I, what I normally sort of advocate is that whatever technique people decide to use, you need to become very comfortable with the nuances in that technique. Um, and that, because regardless of the technique you use, um, you can always end up with a misplaced laser, you know, frame, no frame, robot, no robot. And then what do you use? So I have uh, used a frameless technique using the Medtronic Vertec arm uh, system. And I think when, uh, when I started this, quite frankly, it was either that or using a frame. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a hard position to be in to invest, I think, in more technology to uh, for the insertion technique, uh, for the insertion technique. Already, uh, health systems were making a decent investment in everything else that's involved in the ability to do laser ablation. So once, and then once more techniques came about, you know, I was already very comfortable in the way that I did it. It was sort of a hard sell, you know, to invest more. And quite frankly, uh, I've been comfortable enough with the way that I do it with the, with the second vertex arm and this thing called the precision aiming device, which is a old school kind of thing that Medtronic just throws in, you know, when you buy a stealth machine. And um, I've been very comfortable with all sorts of trajectories, trajectory lengths. Uh, I do oncology with it, epilepsy with it, hippocampus cases with it, and been very, very comfortable with how I do it. 
Yeah, so, so my, my, my background, I, I use predominantly CRW frames. I've actually started dabbling with the Vertec arm as well. And I actually find the Vertec arm a lot more challenging, I think. Than well, I, look, I, don't, I don't know if I would recommend that as a place to start unless you're really, you know. No, listen, busy. I think all of these things have their challenges. So the CRW frame uh, is going to go away in a few years. Like yes. it'll stick around, right? But the mm -hmm. CRW frame itself will go away. Yes. And then while the frame is straightforward, the, the challenge of the CRW frame is that you have to you have to program in a software offset. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so all every every technique has its you know nuances, and I have seen folks forget you know or not put enough offset in, and yeah. then you don't have enough room for that bolt, and then you got to start over. Right. And or imagine doing a low post fossa insertion in CRW frame. Very, very challenging. Very challenging. I've done right. That. Very challenging, if not impossible. Right. So I think that all these techniques, you know, have their pros and cons. Rashna, are you doing laser ablations? I am, and um, I'll probably sound like the the princess in the group because uh, I'm using the Rosa for uh, for the uh, catheter insertions. The row is fantastic, but you're still all you're doing is replacing the arc on the frame with the rosa. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's doing. It's it's nice. It's a nice little arm that you know gets to come in and move in the way. But I I don't know. Tell me, you're you're still fixing the patient in the in the Mayfield, which is what you do with the frameless technique also. Mm -hmm. And many of my colleagues are actually putting still putting the patient in a frame mm -hmm. and using the screw ends on the frame as registration points for the rosa. Is that how you're doing it, Prashna? No, so I, I use either laser fiducial registration um, when I'm using the rosa uh, for these cases, but my partner does it exactly the way you do, where he'll put the patient in the Lexile frame and use that as his fiducial registration. Um, one benefit of the ROSA that I found is doing multiple trajectories um, is, is easier uh, to plan um, ahead of time, um, you know, in a little bit of a more controlled fashion. So I'll kind of take this into, into a question I have for you, which is, A, what type of tumor in your mind, what tumor features in your mind? make it the ideal tumor to ablate versus to resect? And then what are your thoughts on doing um, multiple ablation trajectories? So let's, you know, let's talk about, you know, the first one first, which is it's what tumor is, um, uh, I guess, quote unquote, right candidate, which I think is a controversy in and of itself. Right. I think that, so let, I think let's broadly talk, let's take out primary, you know, tumors out of this equation for the moment. And I'd say one of the home runs in this is, you know, recurrent, infield recurrence after radiation from metastatic tumors. Okay. And uh, let's forget for the moment that there are, uh, there's, there's a, there's a two camps I think in the moment, in just in that world, meaning a camp that says you have to figure out whether this is a recurrent met or radiation necrosis, and then the camp that says, well, maybe it doesn't matter. So let's take that out of the equation. So I'd say 
in a situation where you are dealing with a tumor that cannot come out with conventional surgery, that has been maximally radiated, that you decide has become progressive and is not extremely symptomatic, causing mass effect and requiring high dose steroids, that is, I would say, a, per, a very good candidate and a scenario in which that disease was not a neurosurgical problem until we actually had the laser. And that didn't even come to our attention, I think. As we have, you know, as this technology has, you know, gotten more into our, you know, uh, become a part of our clinical algorithm, and we then are teaching and working with our oncology counterparts and, and our oncology communities and um, allowing them to understand what this can accomplish, I think this is becoming easier to incorporate you know, for, for multidisciplinary oncology you know, groups. But that I think is a good place you know, to start in terms of what's, a, what's you know, a good place to put a laser in you know, as you start. And maybe something we should mention our, our listeners who aren't as familiar is, is size is a big consideration for laser ablation. Sure. Um, you know, and I think, you know, it sounds like you, both of you are using the, uh, are using laser therapy also. Is that, is that correct? Right. So we can have this conversation amongst us. I think when I started this, you know, a long time ago, I quickly realized that large volumes lead you to trouble pretty quickly. Although there's, you know, there was plenty of folks on the other side of that who felt that you can safely ablate 30, 40, 50 cc's. I would say from my perspective that if you're ablating, first of all, if you see a 50 cc mass, many of them probably have already created a corridor by which you can go in and take them out if you think that's what should be done. Two is, I think, it's, it's a hard sell for me personally to ablate that large volume. And I think the data that has come out from multiple groups, including our own, say that as you get into that volume range, your morbidity and mortality from this procedure go way up. Mm -hmm. So I generally feel that with the single laser, I'm looking at somewhere between six to eight cc's is safe and you know, reliably able to be ablated, regardless of the laser you're using. And then, you know, how much, how much does the um, pathology come into that decision-making for you? I, I, I don't know that I really have a good sense. I know you do a pretty high volume of these, but I, I, there's definitely certain tumors that, you know, behave more badly in terms of edema after ablation. And, you know, some, sometimes it can be a little bit of a surprise, you know, I, I've seen, and that kind of gets into a different category of tumors, like primary tumors. Some GBMs, I think when you ablate them can have a you know, pretty profound edema, even with relatively small ablations, obviously that goes up with the, the bigger the size of the lesion you're creating. So. Of course, you know, and the, 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 the world of, you know, uh, GBM is very different, right? I think, you know, we're always looking at just the enhancing components of these, you know, diseases as our targets. And I think we don't know enough about how, you know, what's going on with the biology of the tumor at the time we ablate and how the ablation and the deduction of the post-ablation inflammatory changes in your brain, then sort of you know behave to create that kind of scenario. I'd say in general, smaller volumes are are more easily sort of uh, you know ablatable. Um, 
you know, but then again, you know, a lot of it is on is based on geography, right? So I'd say all of us see these, you know, another good place for laser ablation is these splenial or rostral, you know, um, colossal GBMs where we have, you know, no good surgical options. And I think we have at least reasonable data to suggest it's safe. You potentially can make an impact, you know, but this is, you know, so many variables involved in this. Um, but that, you know, you're routinely ablating, you know, 15 to, you know, 18 cc's or so if you're taking something, or, you know, with two catheters coming in from both parietal lobes to ablate the entire, you know, tumor. So, and that's a situation in which those patients do fine, probably because you're in the geography of the corpus callosum and you're in a white matter tract and, you know, uh, the brain can tolerate it. Which, you know, you take that same volume and putting in, put it in the thalamus, patients are not going to do so well. Right. Right. That's a really good point. Um, How I, many I, catheters are, are too many for you, Dr. Danish? Uh, so I have gone through my own, you know, roller coaster. I thought I used to think there was no limit. Uh, but I have really tried hard to simplify my cases. Now, I'm not afraid to put in a second laser if I need it. But I would say that it's, I can't remember the last time I put three lasers in once. So I'd say, you know, when you say, well, I, for example, the ROSA is a fantastic tool for SEEG, right? You can bring your SEEG or per electro time down to like almost a minute with the ROSA, which even in the best of hands any other way, you'll probably have three to four minutes. But I can't think of a time when, because it's more than just about putting the catheters, right? You then, once you put the catheters in, forget the fact that they're 10 to 12 grand a piece, but you have to then position them in the magnet in a way that you can, you know, have all those bolts not hit the side of the coil and come out and use them. And, you know, you put in every catheter you put in is linear time you then add to the procedure. If you're not, you're ablating each catheter one at a time. So I think I would much rather, now will much rather take a subtotal ablation, even if I know the patient potentially needs another, and, you know, unless it's very clear that the patient needs a second catheter. I'd much rather accept a subtotal ablation, see what I get, let the patient get through, and then come back and, you know, do it again if I need it. I think it's very different than radiation, right? This is thermal energy is non-ionizing and you can do it yeah, again if you need to. And I've done that plenty of times. And I, I guess to flip that question around from what Russian had asked you, so what's clearly something you would say is not a good candidate for a laser ablation? Well, I would say, so a question I get, you know, uh, commonly from physicians who are starting doing this. I think that there's a you may you make an intuitive correlation because it's minimally invasive to say that well if it's in a critical structure or critical area of the brain that maybe it's safer to do to, to use laser and I'd say that that's potentially not true so for example if we see a mass that's right in or right against the motor strip for example I'd say you're probably safer opening that patient up, mapping this patient, maybe keeping the patient awake and doing, you know, going in there and doing, you know, re resection using the techniques that, that we know are tried and true over, you know, decades. Because when you put a laser in, the patient's asleep. 
and you don't necessarily have a way to functionally monitor them yet. So I don't know that, you know, I don't think that just because it's in critical area that laser is necessarily the right answer. Sometimes it's the wrong answer because of that. I think there is, you know, as you said, it's minimally invasive and you can get a false sense of security putting them in deep subcortical structures that we normally don't operate very often. Yeah. In it's the same thing. It's the same thing with radiation, mm -hmm. right? Radio surgery is quote unquote, not, you know, non-invasive. We draw all these lines, we zap the patients, and we're like, they're doing great. But right. if you're not careful, you're going to see them back in six to nine months. That's right. Um, well, and then, you know, I, I think, to, you know, because this is the Controversies podcast, you know, what are areas where you think there really is equipoise where people, you know, have differing opinions? I, I know you mentioned, you know, this primary brain tumors for some people can certainly be an area of controversy. And, you know, some, some of the other kind of... Uh, topics that come up in, in meetings where, where people don't necessarily agree on what the right the right approach well, is. Obviously, that's, that's a little bit surgeon dependent, obviously. So. Yeah, let's, let's, you know, in terms of what to ablate or not to ablate, let's, you know, take pathology out of the question the moment. Right now, you know, we've actually started talking about size. I think many people, if you're, you know, are involved in this procedure or have, you know, looked at the literature will say that, you know, yeah, you, you're going to accept more morbidity and mortality as the volumes increase of ablation. But I would say, look, you know, location uh, is just as much, you know, uh, it's still sort of a controversy. I think one thing I hear commonly is, well, if it's on the surface of the brain, then why do a laser procedure? And, and, and so I, don't, I actually don't think in most instances, this thing really competes with an open operation. Right. You know, I think that what we fail to recognize many times as surgeons is even in the simplest of craniotomy, that 30% of these people will develop a post-craniotomy headache syndrome, which basically is lifelong. Right. They're on some type of treatment for their post, and that's a third of patients. So I would say even if the if the target is superficial, if you can put them through a procedure that potentially has just this good control rate, then why, why give them that risk? We just, I think many surgeons don't necessarily pay attention to a lot of these, a lot of those things because we say, well, you have headaches after surgery, deal with it because, you, you know, the pathology we're dealing with, with was such a, you know, it's such a bigger issue, but if you can, if you can get both, get them control and avoid some of these issues, you know, why not do it? You know, another, you know, um, you know, potential con, but you know, you know, controversial way to, to to look at this is say, take a young patient who is, you know, say in their twenties, who shows up with seizures and has non-enhancing flare-out malady, needle temporal lobe, and you say, well, statistically. This is probably something like a ganglia glioma, right? Low malignancy, super low malignancy potential, right location, seizure-inducing. It's a way that they present. Now, if you can define the target of the abnormality, now we know that if you do a temporal lobectomy, you'll probably cure the patient with seizures, and you easily, very easily will remove that abnormality. But if it's a small volume abnormality, if you use laser procedure up front, you potentially not only control it, but you avoid the craniotomy, the 
visual field deficit, cognitive deficits that come with potentially disconnection of the uh, cortex, especially if it's on the dominant side. Um, and you can potentially avoid all of that. But forget the, you know, all the other stuff we talked about, the crany, the incision, temporal muscle wasting, you know, which we commonly or, you know, for decades will minimize because we accomplished the task at hand. I think that's a really good point. You know, another relatively common uh, uh, scenario that I see is, you know, for recurrent, uh, you know, gliomas and particularly recurrent glioblastomas where, you know, there's, there's desire for, you know, new tissue and, you know, there's an enhancing nodule and, you know, it, it, and people argue it's a straightforward craniotomy is open up their, their old incision and their, you know, their old, take off their old, old flap. But for the patient, that's psychologically a, a big difference between that and an overnight stay for a laser ablation. And, and so we can get a lot of referrals right. for that. Obviously, that's a, you know, also a controversial topic. You know the, you know the the benefit. Uh, you know, I that, think but... uh, yeah, I think recurrent glioma is a tough one. I do a lot less recurrent glioma than I did many years ago because I think you still requires a special patient. They still have to come to the hospital, go through a procedure. And there's so many options for these patients, none of which, if we want to be honest, have shown to really be better than another option. You know, if we if we want to broadly take them, you know, group them all together. And I think that in that, you know, uh, uh, category now, if getting tissue will make a difference in how you treat that patient, then great. But I think that those scenarios are very limited. I, I totally agree. Many I of those to do, patients are, I used to do you know, a lot. regardless yeah, of whether, that. you know, if they're non-methylated and you put them on trial or you decide to treat immunotherapy up front, which is many in many instances still on done on trial, you know, that's already been done by the time these patients come back because they're up front. And many times you've seen these patients after they've undergone, you know, one or two different cocktails of therapies and this maybe to have asked them. And then you say, well, what's getting more tissue going to give you when you've already exhausted your other options? And I'd say that more controversial is in the world of infield recurrence. And I'm calling it infield recurrence for a very specific reason, because I think that's the most accurate way to describe it. Mm -hmm. So if you take a patient to say at radiation for um, a brain metastasis, and then it recurs, for any given patient, the non-interventional diagnostic methods we have have variable sensitivity and specificity. They yeah. all do. And in a, depending on the environment that you're in, some of these, uh, you know, uh, some of these advanced imaging techniques may or may not even be paid for, you know? And so if that is a factor, then you can't, you know, potentially use it. It depends. You know, some places it's not a factor, some places it is. So then, you know, what do you do? You say, well, if you're in an institution that says, well, we think based on the imaging characteristics, it's pure recurrent met, and we are willing to re-irradiate in a place that's already maximally irradiated. That is a uh, philosophical decision, I think, mm -hmm. that a group, a multidisciplinary oncology group makes. And I think that that's fine, right? You're, it's a, you're undergoing, if somebody's got, if a tumor had 24 gray, and then you say, well, I'm going to, retreat it, but I'm just going to treat it with a lower dose. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's pure MET and the first dose didn't work, I'm not, I'm not just not quite sure what data we have that a lower dose will work because we're just 
we're re reducing it with the idea that maybe we'll in, you know, create less of a risk for irreversible radiation necrosis or some issue. And now, actually, yes. So, so, so what about that, that situation where you're not sure if it's met versus radiation? Well, right. So, well, correct. So then you, you, you then either come to consensus based on your thought of the group on the non-intervention or what do you do? You do, you do a needle biopsy. Now here's, in my mind, the pro that there are some times when it may be um, very clear. Now, how do you do a needle biopsy? You actually have to take the patient to the OR. And for many centers, it's the same exact setup for biopsy as it is for a laser procedure. Correct. So then, I, you know, and I, uh, you know, just many people do this and say, well, we're going to send this away for frozen. And the pathologist is going to tell, the pathologist tells us it's pure recurrent met, mm -hmm. then we will stop and we will go re-irradiate the patient. Mm -hmm. And the amount of times I, I hear that a lot, I've never actually seen that done in practice. Nobody is rewound after being set up in the OR with the laser set up to be put in and say, well, the pathologist says I'm a frozen to pure recurrent med, so we're gonna we're gonna abort here and right. we're gonna roll to a radiation. I just it's just unrealistic. It never happened. And beyond that, I'd say what but there's probably very few of us in the world of neurosurgery that would say that we would put, you know, we would bet on the frozen diagnosis, right. especially in that scenario. Mm -hmm. There's not a chance. Now we say, okay, well, I'm gonna do this biopsy and then I will wait to get the answer. And here's the problem, okay, so and that's fine. So suppose you do that, say, well, I'm really gonna do the biopsy and wait to get the answer. Then you get the answer and you can look at the slide with the pathologist or you look in the report Sometimes I say, well, there's a majority of, you know, tumors, right? See a lot of, you know, whatever. Or it says there's a majority of necrosis. Or it says, well, there's some features of both because they become mm -hmm. descriptive. Now, the problem is that the if you put three pathologists <laughs> blinded them and ask them to describe that same picture, mm -hmm. they potentially will describe it differently, and then. The issue in my mind is that what you're seeing on, on the slide doesn't necessarily predict the radiographic or the physiologic behavior of what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. You made a decision to make an intervention based on this radiographic behavior. You do a scan, grows a little bit. You said, ah, let's wait for six to eight weeks. Do another scan, it grows a little bit more. So this is a matter of how far you're willing to drive on E, right? Good, good way to put it. <laughs> so, you know, so this idea that you have to do a biopsy in that scenario, I actually think it's a little bit flawed because I ultimately, now if you say, well, it's academically important for us to know what we're treating. I'm into that. I get it. I'm an academician myself at art <laughs> and I've written a lot about this topic. But I would say that until you get the world of neuropathology to come to some type of consensus about what it is that they're looking at, at least let's come up with the standard way to describe what's being looked at in the world of neuropathology. Only then does it make sense for us to take that next step for us as surgeons, the treating physicians to make a decision based on that, right? So I think we would, you know, 
I'll say analogous to, you know, MR, right? I think we, we, there are some things in the world of MR that all neuroradiologists will look at and say, this is what it is, mm -hmm. right? And that's where I think we need to get to in the world of post, you know, post-radiation recurrence. And that's why I refer to them as infield recurrence, because I think that is an accurate way to, to, to describe what they are. It, and I say that if you look at if we say take this away, this is not I would say take this away from my personal opinion. Let's take a look at the data that exists for the series in this clinical scenario in which you've taken a biopsy and done the procedure, or not taken a biopsy and done the procedure. And the reality is that the control rates are fairly similar. Mm -hmm. That is not the variable. That I, and if that variable saying, well, if you're treating radiation necrosis, you potentially get better control. Great, the, the, but the issue is that there are a few other variables that matter in getting that control. And it doesn't actually, I don't think it actually changes your decision making. Right. Because if you're getting slightly less control in something that you're calling one thing or another, you're still not, not doing that procedure because you don't have a lot of good, you don't have any other option. Right, if, if you do, uh, do you ever advocate for, for treatment specifically for radiation necrosis or known radiation necrosis or presumed? Sure, this thing yeah. works. I think this thing works great for. Mm -hmm. I think, but I think that the challenge for, uh, you know, us is not doing the procedure in that scenario. It's getting the patient who has that problem to us early. Yes, yeah. You want to get that problem to us before it diffuses through the brain, before the patient's you know, got, you know, mass effect and then steroid dependent and, mm -hmm. you know, because then those are not good patients for this technology. And then look, people will, people will do it in that scenario. And then, but the problem is when it fails, the tendency is to blame the technology. Right. Or the technique. Yeah, often, often those, those patients are typically coming to you cushionoid from, you know, months of steroids. Yeah. yeah. And those are not the right patients. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, we covered a lot of ground there pretty quickly, <laughs> uh, getting close to the end of our time here. I, I thought one thing that would be interesting. To, I'm to sorry. Say, I feel like I took up all the time. No, that's perfect. That's, that, that's why we're here. Uh, you know, what do you see the future of, of laser ablation? Where do you see that we could, you know, improve and, you know, the technology could improve, but, you know, in the future, if you, if, if you could sort of control things or, you know, you know, what, what do you see coming down the pipe in the near future? I, look, after 10 years of this thing being around, just so true of many technologies, I think there are some real basic things that we still, you know, need to accomplish. We need to be able to, we need the software planning system that we have to be able to tell us what they think based on constraints we put in, mm -hmm. what is a good trajectory and mm -hmm. how many catheters you need and how you should put them in. That mm -hmm. is something that is currently left to our imagination and our judgment. Yeah, That's a very basic thing we're talking about in search. When we're talking about ablation for anybody who's done the procedure, you actually, you think you know what you're gonna get. But the reality is that you don't know what you're going to get until you actually get down there and start ablating. So I think we need tools that allow us to do better. I think there are some groups that have done some good prelim work saying, hey, can we look at radiographic characteristics of these, and, uh, of these targets 
And can it tell us something about their ability to, you know, conduct or insulate against thermal energy? Mm-hmm. You know, because you want to, when you put in a catheter and you say, I'm going to get eight cc's of elation, you, there are times when you don't get that. And there are times right. when you get more than that. And now the other, and then in terms of actually ablating itself, ultimately, we're going to need more, you know, we're going to need more options when we are sitting there with a, you know, mass that should be ablatable and we can't get that ablation. We don't have a lot of plan B's in there. Right. Right. So we need, we need a, an 11 dial on that. You get that reference? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you. <laughs> so. Well, and I, th- I know something else just briefly that you're you're interested in, you know, which affects what you're just talking about. Sometimes doing biopsies can, you know, fairly significantly, you know, affect your ability to do that that ablation. That you get, you know, artifact and you get a little blood or air in there that can make your ablation. Yeah, no, it's fantastic that you brought that up. Yeah. I'm I'm really thank you. I, I'm friends, but it's true. And sure, I've been trying to trying to write about it, although you know it's. It's it's hard to you know get those things across the finish line, but um, but uh, you're right. If you're not careful about how you do your biopsy, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but it, um, it it the moment you create signal heterogeneity in your procedure, it leaves you with more anxiety than you need. Yeah, I've definitely learned to be a little careful about where I biopsy. You know, not, the, not the spot you care the most about, I guess is the way I would say it. Well, look, and sometimes you'd say maybe the answer is take two different trajectories, one for mm-hmm. your biopsy and the other for your laser, just so you mm-hmm. can get through a smooth procedure. And I think that that is actually not unreasonable. Yeah, yeah, that's not a bad thought. Rashna, do you have any other comments or questions? Yeah, for the, for the artifact created uh, from the biopsy, uh, can't remember who suggested this to me, but um, before you take your biopsy needle out, injecting just you know um, less than half a cc of some saline into it to just kind of fill that um, area up, just kind of get some of that air out. Sometimes has made a difference. The few cases where I've I've done um, biopsies and have not done it or forgotten to do it. The artifact has been pretty tremendous. Look, I'll tell you, it's again, it's going to end up being a judgment call. Not everybody is going to have a level of comfort injecting even half a cc deep in the brain. And the reality is that we don't know in the moment. It just happens to be one of these things that's on my to-do list, something I'm studying. And I think for years we've taught people that that signal artifact comes from blood. And... Or, and when it happens during a procedure, that it happens because a hemorrhage is occurring. I myself have taught people this for years, and I actually think it may not be true. I think there's a lot of variables that go into the signal artifact. And, if, you, know, uh, uh, you know, I think one thing that I've learned after many years of doing this is that you can actually manipulate the way that the artifact looks right on the machine. So well, yeah. I, I think there's still a lot to learn. So. Yeah, and I, I think that gets back to your point. And you know, the, the more we can estimate that and predict some of those things, I think it takes a lot of the stress out of that. You know, the procedure that when it goes well is very smooth. And you know, as you said, you 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 don't have a lot of backup plans when it it doesn't go the way you expect, other than the things to come back another day. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think you know there's still you know plenty of work to be done. But you know, look, 
maybe 10 years from now, this will all be obsolete because non-invasive ablation will have replaced it. Yeah, the other thing I would comment is you know, what we said at the beginning, that right now there's several different ways to put them in, and most of those ways are, are pretty complicated, and it'd be nice to have technology that, that sort of you know, made it not quite so difficult or you know, so costly to you know, have a stereotactic system to put it in. But, the vertex arm is free. <laughs> there you go. And we're back to where we started. <laughs> yeah, we're back to where we started. <laughs> well, I think that I think that covers it. You know, thank you so much for participating. You know, it's, it's been a great discussion. It, it went by quickly as, as it always does. And uh, um, I, for everyone uh, uh, listening, thank you for uh, listening to our podcast uh, for, for myself and Dr. Lee and then Dr. Danish, our guest. Uh, thank you for listening. And, you know, certainly check out this podcast and others at uh, CNS.org. Uh, good night, guys.